Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, April the 24th, 2022. It is currently 3.50 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live. Two stories above a street here in Abilene, Texas. Yes, that's where I'm coming to you live from. I know you probably got used to me all of those years saying I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located in the middle of nowhere, Texas, but now I'm coming to you live two stories above a street in Abilene, Texas. Does does that paint a picture? Let, let me paint the picture a little better. It's Sunday afternoon. Here in West Texas, it is cloudy, There's been a light rain that's been falling off and on since church was over this morning. There's almost a a chill in the air, almost, considering it was, what, almost 100 degrees a couple of days ago. So there's like this, it's a chilly, cold kind of rain. Cold may be not an accurate description. A a, a chilly kind of rain. Is that even a good term? it's It's a cool rain. There's that better it's a nice, soft rain that has been falling, kind of almost a mist. It's cloudy. It's kind of dark out. And, uh, well, it's a Sunday afternoon. Now, a lot of people would be like, what a perfect time to go take a nap. And you know how I feel about that. I hate sleep, period. Much. I'm definitely not going to take a nap. I'm definitely not going to do that. Look, look I only have a limited amount of time to live and I don't want to be using that time of life sleeping. To me, sleeping is simply a dress rehearsal for death. That's all That's all sleepy, sleeping is to me. It's You're just having a dress rehearsal for death, right? You lay down, and then in a sense, you lose any meaningful consciousness, right? I mean, you may be dreaming, but you lose consciousness to the world around you. So in a roundabout way, to me, Sleep is dress rehearsal for death. I don't need to. I don't need any. Uh, to, I don't need to rehearse for it. I don't need the dress rehearsal. I can skip the practice. I can skip it. I don't need it. I don't want it because, well, I've got a limited amount of time to be alive and to do things and accomplish things. And so, yes, I, I despise sleep. But a lot of people, there's a lot of people right now Sunday afternoon, and guess what they're doing right now. Oh, they're peaceful. They're sound asleep. They're probably enjoying it. I guess you can enjoy sleep, I guess. They're, they're enjoying it. But I think we should use this opportunity instead of sleeping. Now, now, maybe before I'm done, you will be sleeping. But instead of using this opportunity on a Sunday afternoon, I've always felt, and you may disagree, I always felt, especially when I was in the, in the military and worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, who knows how many hours per day, depending on what was going on at a given time. Sometimes I was working on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, all the different things going on in the military at any given time. But I always felt that tip that when I had, when I had those jobs where I worked a normal week, like a, a normal work week, say on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I always thought Sunday afternoons really provided the, a great time to catch up on a lot of important spiritual things like Bible memory or Bible reading or listening to some extra sermons or or just or just maybe sitting there listening to him. In other words, it was a it was a wonderful time for spiritual refreshment. 
right? I think it's like, because you get into the week and you may have every intention to do a lot of things spiritually during the week, but sometimes there's just, well, if you listen to the last broadcast, distraction after distraction. And sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, things can slow down. Now, not for everyone, but I'm seeing in, in a, for, for a lot of people, it can kind of slow down and you got those hours there, especially if you don't have church on a Sunday night. Um, you've got even extra hours to just give it to the things of God. But we we sometimes say, you know what? It's the Lord's day. <laughs> I don't know why we call it the Lord's day because we sometimes have a hard enough time giving him two hours. Okay, But we're like, it's the Lord's day. No, it's the Lord's, you get two hours. But if it is the Lord's day, then it's really a day that that we shouldn't see it as a legalistic obligation, but as a blessing. It's given to us for spiritual benefit, for spiritual growth. And we need that because so much of our time, so much of our focus is given to the things of the world. On a Sunday, it's a good time to just turn all of everything else off and focus on the things of God. Now, do that for yourself. Sometimes parents will get convicted about something like this and they'll try to make it up. The whole family's going to do it. I, I, that, you can't, don't make other people Use it for yourself, okay? Just sometimes we want to immediately just, well, everyone else has to do what I'm doing. No, just you use Sunday for that. So in effort to kind of help facilitate that, you'll, you'll probably notice, a lot, I, I could be wrong, but a lot of the episodes that we've done in this series, and for if you don't know, this series, we're, we're still studying the book of the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, Right? book written over 500 years ago. For some reason, this book just seems to be the perfect Sunday afternoon book. It really does. Maybe maybe it's just something that's happened in my own past, in my own past is that on a Sunday afternoon, I've had church, had Sunday school at church. Um, maybe I've done a lot of deeper theological studies maybe during the week. And a Sunday afternoon just seems a perfect time for more devotional type reading, right? I'm not saying always, but it just sometimes just seems to just have that. And The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis just seems the perfect book for that. So that's what we're going to do. So let's turn back to, if you have a copy of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, written over 500 years ago. We've been working through this book now for, I, it feels like since around 2020. Um, so we, we're probably almost two years into our study, and we're, we're still only in book two, um, and we're still in chapter nine of book two, and we're dealing with this idea of divine comfort versus human comfort. And Thomas Akempis really kind of sets these two apart that divine, once all we should care about is divine comfort and we should all, we don't even need human comfort at that point. He almost sets, sets the two at odds with one another. And we talked about this. I, uh, we talked a little bit about the famous uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We talked about that. I, I told you to kind of draw like on one hand of on on one side of the piece of paper write divine comfort on the other side of the piece of paper write human comfort and then in the middle draw of a picture you can be like a stick figure of yourself and inside of you draw maslow's hierarchy of needs or the pyramid of happiness is what it's referred to and you can go back and listen to why i told you to do that i think we're really onto a very 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 deep spiritual concept there but I'm not going to review it right now. We're just going to go back to the book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and we're just going to jump in here, and hopefully we can benefit someone on this Sunday afternoon. 
Sounds good. Or in book two, chapter nine, which is called Want of All Comfort. And uh, well, we're going to just begin right here. I'm not, I'm not going to do any review. I'm not going to go back and read any of the previous paragraphs. You can go back and listen to all of that. Here we go. Thinking caps on. Thomas Akempis writes over 500 years ago, I have never found man so religious and devout that he had not sometimes a withdrawing of grace or felt not some decrease of zeal. Let's stop right there. You see why it's going to take us 10 years to work through this book? But that's okay. We're not in a hurry. The key is to benefit from this. All right, so here we go. Thomas Akempis makes a very powerful observation. Now, we can't say that this is a scientific observation. This seems from his own personal encounters, his own, own personal experiences. Now, what's interesting is Thomas Akempis would be writing from a Catholic monastery. So even within a monastery, right, people who've, in a sense, turned from the world, and given themselves fully to the church. Now, I'm not saying we have to agree with their theology, but have given themselves to Christ and the church, all right? Even within them, because that would be the people he'd probably most encounter. He writes this, he's never found someone so religious and devout. So the most religious and devout person within the monastery, he's never found one of them that had not sometimes the withdrawing of grace or felt not some decrease of zeal that even the most religious at times go through this feeling of the zeal is gone. They just seem to lose that passion, that zeal, that excitement for God. This seems to be something every person, no matter how spiritual, no matter how devout, no matter how committed you are, you can experience this. I think some people experience it more frequently than others. We could get into a discussion maybe of why, but it's something we're all going to encounter. There's sometimes it's just like, I've, I've talked about it in my own spiritual life. I, it, it drives me crazy how it can, it can uh, so fluctuate, almost like you're on a roller coaster. Mine is not that erratic, okay, to describe it as a roller coaster, but at least for brief periods of time, it feels like I'm on a roller coaster. But I think for the most part, there's somewhat of a consistency, but there's these weird highs and weird lows. And this is how it works for me. Now, uh, I don't know if we're going to get any further, but I can only speak for for me. You, You can tell me whether you agree or disagree, but this is how it works for me. There are times that I can pick up the Bible. I don't care where I turn. I don't care what verse. You give me a notebook, you give me a pencil and the Bible, and as soon as I start reading, it's like, it literally, it feels like every single letter of every single word is jumping off the pages and punching me in the face. It's like, oh, this is good. This is awesome. This is convicting. This is amazing. This is great. And my, 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 I can fill up a journal, just start writing and writing and writing, and I got this, and I got this cross-reference, and this idea, and I got this idea, and I got, oh, this, and I got this, and it's just, oh, man, this is the great. It's like, it's almost like a drug. It's the greatest. It's like everything in the Bible is alive and it's just amazing. I love that. Every sermon, I can go from one Christian podcast to another sermon. And even though I disagree, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't, I think this person's completely crazy. Oh, but that was good. And that was good. And that was, oh, he mentioned that verse. And that made me think of this. And it's just like everything is just a most amazing experience. 
It's like there's not a cloud in the sky. The birds are singing. Everything is bright. Everything is alive. Everything is just Every word has meaning. Every I, I can get a I can read any Christian book and I'm like, oh, that's good and that's good and that's good and that just it's just the most amazing feeling. And then all of a sudden, it feels like all of a sudden, I'll wake up and it's like, oh well. Like I'll say I'll have a devotional guide and I'll turn to where it tells me to read and I'm like, well, I didn't really do much and get ready to listen to a sermon. And after about five or 10 minutes, I'm like, man, don't really want to do that today. I'm going to do something else. And maybe I should read something. I don't really want to do that. And just everything just feels like whatever, whatever. And then what we tend to do when we start feeling that one, we may start feeling that and not even want to touch the Bible or listen to a sermon. Sometimes we'll try and then just say, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. And then you reach over I close my Bible and I go do other things. Anybody else guilty? Anybody else? Anybody else? I, I see that hand. Okay. I don't actually see that hand because I'm sitting in an empty room. Okay. But I bet you there's somewhere going, oh, I've kind of felt that. I hate when that happens. Why does that happen? I think we, we, we always have to remember the impact that as a human being, right? As human beings, we remember there are, we are, there's a lot going on inside of us. Not only do we have all of the chemical interactions happening on, within our body, but we have these emotional ups and downs. And emotions can dramatically impact us spiritually. Emotions can impact us spiritually. And we've always got to make sure we realize the impact of emotion on us and be very careful about that. But he acknowledges that, hey, even the most religious, devout man will, will sometimes have a withdrawing of grace and feel, not, and, and feel some kind of decrease of zeal. He goes on to write, again, Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ, written over 500 years ago. He says this, There was never a saint so high, caught up and illuminated, who first or last was not tempted. Doesn't matter how illuminated you are. Doesn't matter how high you may be. Doesn't matter how spiritual you may be, you're, you're going to encounter some kind of temptation. Now, this is interesting, for he is not worthy of the high contemplation of God who has not been exercised with some tribulation for God's sake. Now, that's interesting. Thomas Akempis seems to say you, you can't truly. You're, you're not worthy of that high contemplation. You're not worthy of that great experience, that mountaintop experience, until you have uh, exercised with some, you've not exercised, struggled with some tri uh, tribulation for God's sake. Temptation going before is a want to be a sign of ensuing comfort. Now he goes back to the idea of comfort, right? Hey, sometimes... In a sense, we have to suffer some, struggle some, some discouraged, depressed, everything just seems dead to us so that we experience that so then we can be recipients of the divine comfort. In other words, we can't be recipients of the divine comfort until we have some of these feelings where we where, we're, where we feel like we're missing something, where something is missing, we're discouraged, whatever it may be. But it sets us up for the for the reception of the divine comfort. Now, 
We can circumvent this if we go seeking to satisfy whatever this feeling, this blah, whatever. We turn from God and we try to satisfy these, these feelings by looking for human comfort. That, that's kind of how Thomas Akempis is setting this up. He goes on to say, For unto those who are proved by temptations, heavenly comfort is promised. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, Revelation 2.7. But divine consolation is given that a man be, may be bolder to bear adversities. There follows also temptation. So, but divine consolation is given that a man may be bolder to bear adversities. There follows also temptations, lest he should wax proud of any good. So in other words, when we receive the divine comfort, it's a wonderful thing, but that can, we've got to be careful because we can become proud and arrogant in those times where everything seems to be so wonderful and great spiritually. We can become arrogant and proud in it. So there's a temptation to be found there. The devil sleeps not. So think of it this way. The devil, he doesn't sleep. So when you are feeling whatever, discouraged, bitter, angry, depressed, sad, just no passion and zeal for God, Satan is there to bring temptation. And that temptation may you seek out human comfort to satisfy or to try to fix these feelings instead of waiting for divine comfort. But once you receive the divine comfort, then Satan is right there in a sense saying, because you're better than everyone else. You're more spiritual than everyone else. So there is temptation either way. When thing, when you're on this, when we are on the spiritual mountain, there's temptation. When you're in the, in the spiritual valley, when you're in the spiritual pit, there is temptation, which is kind of discouraging that there's temptation no matter what is going on. All right. Uh, the devil sleeps not, neither is the flesh as yet dead. Therefore, cease not to prepare yourself to the battle, for on your right hand and on your left are enemies who never rest. On your right and on your left are enemies who never rest. Satan and the flesh, they're on your left and then they're on your right, and they never rest. And they do not rest when you are on the spiritual mountain or when you're in the spiritual pit. There's just different kinds of temptations coming at you. And these temptations, think about it, divine comfort can become a source of temptation because we take the divine comfort and become spiritually arrogant and proud and judgmental and condemning of other people. Human comfort can become a temptation because now we're seeking human comfort, which turns us away from God. And we sometimes may seek a human solution to where we should find a spiritual solution. I want you to see divine comfort and human comfort can be a source of temptation. I want you to realize that you have an enemy on the left and on the right, which is Satan and the flesh. And when whether you're on the spiritual mountain or in the spiritual pit, there is spiritual temptation that is waiting right there for you. So here's the question. What do you do? I want you to be honest with me, all right? Now, you don't have to answer it right now. You don't have to answer it in the chat. You, can, you don't have to even send me an answer. But what do you do? When you feel that lack of spiritual zeal, 
when you feel a spiritual coldness, a spiritual apathy, almost a spiritual, just like a dark cloud has come, like right now, like I'm, I'm sitting in, in, in this second floor story room, this, the second floor room, there's a, there's a lamp behind me. If I go turn this lamp off, it's a, it's a high lamp. It's about, I don't know, what, five, six foot, maybe six foot. So it's high, and so the light is, is kind of bright up in the room. But if I go turn this off right now, it's going to get dark in here. It's going to get dark. I, in fact, well, I almost want to turn it off, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't serve much of an illustrative purpose since you can't see it. But if I was to turn it off, it would get dark in this room, right? Because it's dark outside. It's cloudy. It's overcast. It's misty, rainy, just one of those kind of blah days. Now, some people may love this weather. I love it when I'm inside. I don't like going out in the rain, but you get the idea. But it's just one of those, let's just say a blah day, misty, just kind of like uh, blah. What happens in your spiritual life when you find yourself just, again, spiritual apathy, complacency, deadness, Word of God, you don't want to listen to sermons, you don't want to read, you don't want to do Bible study, you don't want to go to church, you're just, ugh, ugh. What do you do? What we tend to do is we just say, okay, I'm done. We put the Bible up and we start, we go look to something else to get us out of this blah feeling, right? And we usually look for human comfort. Human comfort to be like, no, forget God, come over here. Forget God, here, here's what you need. Don't look to God. Look to this, right? What, is that not what we have a tendency to do? Instead of looking to God, we look to human comfort. So what do you do when you are facing that? What, what, what happens? What, so what do you do when you're facing kind of a spirit, spiritual blahs, a spiritual apathy? What do you do? What do you do when you're facing great pain, sadness, and tragedy? And then what do you do to protect yourself when you find yourself on the spiritual mountaintop? What do you do to protect yourself? Because there's temptation, whether it's the spiritual apathy, the spiritual blahs, whether it's pain, or whether it's spiritual victory mountaintop, there's a temptation to be found in all of those situations. I think for the tragedy, pain, and for the spiritual apathy, we have to rely on still keep looking to God, keep still opening that Bible, still keep listening to sermons, and not look to human comfort to fix it. When we're on the spiritual mountaintop, I think one of the ways to protect us is, one, to ensure that we don't take our time of spiritual victory as an opportunity to look down on others, condemn others, and, and can't figure out why others are not like us. That's a that's a dead giveaway. We should be humbled by the fact that we're experiencing such spiritual victory and be grateful to God and take every advantage of it. It's amazing how, you know, everything's going great on a, on a Monday, and then all of a sudden on a Tuesday, that, that feeling just seems to be gone. It's just so weird to me when that happens. Man, I love when I can just open the Bible and it's like everything's just clicking. Like boom, 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 boom. And when it goes away... It's the most depressing. I can't speak. It's discouraging. I hate that feeling. Because I'm always fearful. When is it going to come back? When is it going to come back that I can just go, all right, 
I can just open and go, okay, all right, Luke chapter 8. A sower went out to sow his seed. Okay, now see, I can now when it's kind of blah, I'll be like, okay, I know that parable. Yeah, whatever. I don't. Yeah, what am I going to do with it? But on those days where it's like, ooh, 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 it doesn't matter how many times I've read it. Doesn't matter how many times I've preached it. Don't matter how many times I learned it in Bible college or seminary. It's like the greatest thing on the history in the history of mankind. There you have it. That concludes chapter nine of book two of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. Therefore, cease not to prepare yourself to the battle for on your right hand and on your left are enemies who never rest. But I think the key phrase that I want to take from this is I have never found a man so religious and devout that he is not sometimes, that he had not sometimes a withdrawing of grace or felt not some decrease of zeal. The next chapter we'll look at is chapter 10, Gratitude for the Grace of God. The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Kempis. There you have it. Thanks for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Please consider downloading the Church One app, Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. Once you download the app, simply type in Theology Central. Remember, Church One app is a generic app used by all kinds of broadcasters. But once you type in Theology Central, it becomes the Theology Central app, right? And, uh, well, we want you to use it because then you get all of our content and you can listen to us live whenever we're live. And it just makes it very simple for everyone, all right? So I think we got everything there. All right, we're good to go. All right, Um, it is 4.15. I don't know if I, I don't think I'm gonna get another one in before church. So six o'clock is when we'll be alive again, coming to you from the sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, where we'll be studying Matthew 24 for this week's Bible study exercise. So make sure you tune in. All right, everyone have a great, great evening. God bless.